0: The Doctrine of Discovery is the current system of laws and policies that justify the removal of land from indigenous peoples. These laws are rooted in church doctrines that originated
1: in the 15th century. Together, we will uncover this deep structure of colonization that systematically deprives indigenous peoples of human rights. I'm Sherry
0: Hostetler, and I helped start a coalition of Anabaptist people of faith that seek to dismantle the Doctrine of Discovery. I'm also a Mennonite pastor in San Francisco.
1: And I'm Sarah Augustine, and I also help start this coalition. As an activist and scholar, I'm the descendant of the Tewa people and a displaced person. This is the Dismantling the Doctrine of Discovery podcast. In
0: this episode, we talk about why renewable energy and electric cars and green growth won't save us, and how they are actually linked to the same extractive, dominating worldview of the doctrine of discovery.
1: So, hi, Sarah. Hi, Sherry. I am really interested to hear about, you know, you were telling me you read the book less is more how Degrowth will save the world by jason hickle and i was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about that because we've been talking about this this question of of green energy and and uh, and this sort of revolution of renewable energy and and the inputs that are required to fuel that so i wonder if you can just talk give a summary of what you've learned yeah, I'm
0: sort of obsessed with what is this degrowth movement that is much bigger in Europe than it is here. And Jason Hickel in particular is somebody who really links degrowth to um, decolonization and global justice. Um, so let me just start unpacking what I've learned. Um, we have an economy that's predicated on continuous growth continuous growth. So in our current system, our GDP really needs to keep growing by at least two to 3% per year. But this of course means, and you know, growth is just like, nobody is saying that we don't need more growth. Everybody wants growth, but that means ever increasing levels of extraction and production and consumption. And two to 3% a year might not seem like much, but it's exponential. So exponential curves have a way of like sneaking up on you. 3% growth a year means doubling the size of the global economy every 23 years. I think let's just think about that, like doubling the size of the global economy every 23 years. And, And then doing that again. I mean, that's just that much more extraction, resource use, consumption, waste, um, and there's a very strong correlation between GDP and energy and resource use and that's been true for hundreds of years. Some people think we can decouple energy and resource use from from domestic from growth but that has so far not been proven to be true and many scholars think it's it can't happen and so the fact is we are now dramatically overshooting safe planetary boundaries which includes not only climate change, but air pollution, ozone layer depletion, ocean acidification, um, fresh uh, land conversion, which means converting land from wild land into agricultural use and other use, biodiversity loss. We're actually already overshot on four of those, what what scientists have defined as safe planetary boundaries. So even if we had 100% clean energy, which might be impossible, what do we do with it? So he says exactly what we have been doing with fossil fuels. We'll just cut down more forest and troll for more fish and mine more mountains and build more roads and expand industrial farming and send more waste to to landfills. So what he's getting at is that the issue here is not just climate change. It's ecological Devastation and it's this ecological crisis. And then, of course, he says that the ecological crisis is not caused equally. So, I just really this morning read an interview with him where he says, you know, who's driving the ecological crisis? It's overwhelmingly the rich countries of the global north. These countries are collectively responsible for 92% of excess emissions. He says they have colonized the atmospheric commons for their own enrichment. Meanwhile, the entirety of the Global South is responsible for only 8% of excess emissions. And that's from just a small number of countries. So most countries in the Global South are still well within their fair share of the safe carbon budget and have done nothing To contribute to the climate crisis. In fact, some of those countries actually need to. Well, let me go back. The same can be said for resource consumption. Rich rich countries, he said, consume on average 28 tons of material stuff per person per year. I'm going to say that again 28 tons of material stuff per person per year, which is about four times over the safe per capita boundary for the planet. Most Global South countries are well under that boundary. And in fact, he says many low income countries in the Global South need to increase resource use
1: to meet human needs. So I wonder if we can sort of, if you mind, if I further complexify this conversation by talking about the economic system and how it works, at least in, in the realm that I know in in the Caribbean and in South America. So you have this, um, what's called a supranational structure. It's it's above the actual individual nations, and that's the Organization of American States. And if you look at their charter, their, their real goal is to promote what they would call economic development and trade. And so they're really kind of a similar structure to the EU. Um, And what they do is they promote economic activities to go on between um, the countries in this hemisphere. And that program is really geared towards promoting resource extraction. So that means going to developing countries and taking raw resources out, Exporting those resources to developed countries for consumption and for um, and for value added. So, for example, you're taking ore out um, for smartphones or for computer components, and all of that is going to go for processing to developed countries. So, so the the countries that are being that are being mined or where extraction and pollution is happening, they're getting the least amount of profit from from the 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 products that are going to be sold on the market. So anyway, it sounds a little bit boring, but what I'm trying to say is that in terms of safe planetary boundaries, what you were what you were talking about before from um, Hickel's interview, it's not as though these developing nations are just sort of sitting there and not using their resources. What's happening is that decisions are being made in a non-transparent process um, where there's no redress for the people most impacted. Those people's resources are being taken out and waste is being left in its place, and the benefits are going to countries like Canada and the United States in terms of uh, resource extraction because, you know, Canada and the U.S. are the biggest mining interests in the world. And so, so I agree with Hickel that it's not only um, unequal in terms of its impact, in terms of, you know, use and impact. Not only are rich countries benefiting most from this and consuming the most, but they are creating the most waste and impact ecologically in poorer nations. I don't know if that makes sense, Sharon.
0: Oh, yeah, because the next, the very next thing he said, after I mentioned the thing about rich countries consuming on average 28 tons of material stuff per person, is he said, resource use in the global north is in large part net appropriated from the Global South through what are patterns of imperial power, which is the what you just talked about. Nearly half of all the resources consumed in the Global North every year are appropriated from the South. Resources that could be used to meet human needs there to build hospitals and produce food are instead u- used to service what he calls growthism in the Global North. So he said that, you know, folks in the global south who've been demanding global justice have actually been saying that social movements in the south, he said, have recognized that growth in the north, this sort of god of economic growth that we hold on to in the north has been colonizing their ecosystems and appropriating their resources
1: for for decades now. Not decades, for for centuries, really. For centuries, you're right. But, but the impact is really starting to be obvious um, and you know the other thing I want to say is we are all we have all lined up behind the UN's development goals. And this idea of of um, progress being measured in gross domestic product or gross national product, and th- that is a fallacy. What that does is it invites economic development, which which result which really is is a mask for economic exploitation. It invites economic exploitation. The laws are, are arranged in a way to to justify economic exploitation in the name of economic development. So often vulnerable communities like indigenous peoples are worse off after this process than they were in the beginning.
0: We've done podcasts on that and your book um, talks about that so clearly, um, which, of course, I will link to in the show notes. Um, yeah, so there's two two things that I think, uh, you know, that this whole idea of the, the Green New Deal, there actually is, I didn't know this, there was a global Green New Deal that is addressing a lot of the things we're talking about. But the Green New Deal, I think, framework in our country Often um, there's you know there's two things that are there's a, well there's a number of things that are problematic about it. One is that you know the ecological crisis is about more than just the 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 climate, resource use, both where it is sourced and how much is consumed, is also a really big problem. And the global Green New Deal recognizes that. And I know that your work and your activism and our work with indigenous communities has recognized that. Um, And the second thing that he points to is that renewable energy doesn't come out of thin air. Solar panels and wind turbines and lithium batteries all have a material basis, most of which are extracted from the global south in ways that are ecologically and socially harmful. So, yes, we need to have this energy transition But if we continue growth at the same time, we have this problem because more growth means more energy demand. And that means more pressure on the global South, which will just continue to harm communities that have already been harmed by extractivism. Not to mention the fact that these communities need to be able to keep their
1: resources, need to have self-determination. And Sherry, I've heard you say before that um, that these resources, like the production of solar panels or wind turbines, those are not renewable. They are replaceable, but they're not renewable. Can you tell me what you mean by that?
0: Well, that's an insight that comes from Nate Hagans. And he says, you know, I don't refer to renewable resource, uh, renewable, um, energy said so I, I refer to it as rebuildable energy because Yes, the 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 sun and the wind are renewable, but the things that we need to capture the sun and the wind aren't. They are material objects that are made from um, material things. And they they will, you know, they, they don't last forever. And so the silica that we need to make solar panels, I mean, there's already some thought that we are getting close, well. That we can see the fact that we might run out of the kind of sand that we need to use to make the silica that's need to that's made for that's used to make solar panels. So that's what he calls it. It's rebuildable energy, not renewable energy. Right. And I think what what what. Hickel is getting at. And what you have mentioned and what we are mentioning is that all of those materials that we need to build these things, often those are resources that are extracted from the global South and done so in this way that benefits the global North and does not, and and basically decimates communities in the global South and especially indigenous communities that are particularly vulnerable.
1: That's right. And you know, another impact that I'm thinking about, Sherry, if you will allow me to just kind of have another digression here, another impact that we're seeing globally is migration. So, we have this idea in the United States, well, it's more of a narrative. We have this narrative in the in the United States that people come across our border because of pull factors. They want to have a better life. They're seeking the American dream. And that narrative itself is really a fallacy. Many, many, many refugees come here because of push factors. That is to say the the lands where they live are contaminated. The violence that has resulted from the co-optation of local economies, the lack of self-determination, the consolidation of power in the hands of, um, well, gangs and warlords, um, is what pushes people to leave their homes and everything they they know in order to seek asylum, uh, in, in the global North, um, in, in North America here, and then also in Europe. And so we're seeing the impacts of this, of this drain of resources on the global South. Um, and often we're not equating those things together. Um, but it's, it's obvious to me that that, that is a direct result, of, um, of this, well, colonization and exploitation of the global South.
0: So another thing that Hickel
1: points out, this
0: is actually from the book, not the interview I just mentioned, was that either, even if we had 100% clean energy, let's just, there's a lot of reasons why I don't think it's going to be possible for us to just replace all of the energy use that we, energy we're using right now with clean energy. And I can link to some articles about that in the show notes, because it's a little complex to get into. But even if we had 100% clean energy, he says, what would we do with it? Exactly what we're doing with fossil fuels. We would cut down more forest. We would fish for more fish. We would mine more mountains. We would build more roads. We would do all these things that we have been doing that have really devastated a lot of indigenous and vulnerable communities. And all of these things have ecologic, ecological consequences that our planet can no longer sustain.
1: So what I hear you saying, Sherry, is that it's not going to do anything. 100% clean energy won't do anything to reverse deforestation or overfishing or the contamination of oceans or soil depletion or mass extinction in terms of um, biodiversity. You know, In other words, 100% clean energy is not going to save us. No. Um,
0: So there's this quote, for us to go to 100% clean energy and get to zero emissions, by some estimates, we're going to need 35, 34 million metric tons of copper. And I just want to mention that our coalition is involved in a Solidarity struggle with the San Carlos Apache of um, what is now called Arizona to to maintain their sacred lands from a copper mining com- on an Australian copper mining com- uh, company. So, where is this? Just let's just think about where all this copper is kind of come from. So, and let me go back. For instance, by some estimates, in order to get to zero emissions, we're going to need thirty-four million metric tons of copper, forty million tons of lead. 50 million tons of zinc, 162 million tons of aluminum, and 4.8 billion tons of
1: iron. So, Sherry, that doesn't sound clean to me. (laughs) Um, Demand for indium, which is
0: also essential to solar technologies, will more than triple and could end up skyrocketing by 920%. And last, last stat... There's all the batteries we're going to need for power storage. We're going to need 40 million tons of lithium, which is a 2,700% increase over current levels of extraction.
1: So we will um, destroy one life support system which is I'm talking about soils when we're talking about extraction and, and the forest, the ground that we depend on to live, we're going to extinguish that in order to um, to save the air. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Because we know that we live in a, a fixed system, right? That is, we don't get to import more water from somewhere else. We don't get to bring in more soil. We can't bring in more air. We're in a we're in a closed system. Right. right? And so um, so if we're saying, hey, we don't want to have all this carbon in the air, and in order to do that, we're going to extract, you know, millions and millions of tons, well, it looks like um billions of tons of ore to to end um, carbon emissions will just be depleting uh, one of the three um, legs of the stool, which is soil.
0: Right. Well, not to mention water. Water. You're right. Yeah, because you've, you've seen firsthand what mining does to water sources. Yeah. But I think mainstream economics doesn't recognize that we live within um, a, a closed system, as you said. And I think that's where this craziness that we could just keep growing our economy year after year after year after year comes from. Because the idea that we could actually use up um, what our planet has to offer and that we could overuse resources and over pollute our environment somehow doesn't factor into this
1: mainstream economic yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I noticed here is just thinking through all these numbers of, you know, you were saying a 920% increase um, for Indium and um, 2,700% increase um, for lithium, you know, that's all just for electricity. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's
0: just the materials that could go into making electric cars. So if we're going to replace the world's projected fleet of 2 billion vehicles with electric cars, then we're going to need this explosive increase in mining. So we probably do need more electric cars, right? But I think we radically need to reduce the number of cars we use. I mean, this is where the whole idea of public transit comes in, and that doesn't even take into account like how do you actually decarbonize decarbonize like um, cargo container ships? Can they actually run on electricity? That's a whole other debate that's happening that you don't know, hear talked about. I think very much in sort of the mainstream idea of you know electrifying everything and green growth. Um so as i said the problem and really the problem is not that we might run out of key minerals although that could be a problem the problem is that all of this is going to exacerbate an already existing crisis of over extraction Because mining has already become a big driver of deforestation, of ecosystem collapse, and biodiversity loss around the world. And I think that is the point where so much of this very directly ties into the doctrine of discovery, as I've already mentioned, with that example of the San Carlos Apache tribe in Arizona resisting a copper mine on their ancestral lands, these lands that they don't have legal title to because of the doctrine of discovery.
1: And we see that around the globe. I mean, one of the things I would just, I, I would just sort of, um, I keep doing this further complexify is that it's not just a drain from the global South to the global North, although that's obviously true. It's basically from the lands of, of vulnerable peoples to the lands of the privileged people, because of course, extraction happens on indigenous lands here in North America as well. Right. Right. Um, in the United States and Canada and Mexico, um, the, 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 the resources that are held on sacred territories of indigenous peoples are just exploited. And all of that is possible because of the Doctrine of Discovery. And of course, the Doctrine of Discovery was the first international law. And the charter of the Organization of American States is based on that. It is based on a colonial, um, what I say, worldview. You
0: have said this too. I I think at one of our podcasts, we might have said something like the doctrine of discovery is coming for all of us. I mean, you see that in like the mountaintop mining that's happening among vulnerable communities in Appalachia, where their their lands are just being destroyed and
1: their creeks and rivers polluted. Um, And their life expectancies are abysmal. Right. As a result of that. I mean th- right. that population has a different life expectancy than than other people living in other parts of the country.
0: Yeah. And so I think that, you know, this this there are many vulnerable communities here in the United States, among them in primarily indigenous communities, but other vulnerable communities that are also being used to service this extractivist growth oriented economy. And not to and not to their not to their betterment. Um, so, one other little fact um, lithium, Hickel writes, is an ecological disaster. It takes 500,000 gallons of water, 500,000 gallons of water to produce a single ton of lithium. Even at the present levels of extraction, he writes, this is causing real problems. In the Andes, where most of the world's lithium is located, mining companies are burning through water tables and leaving farmers with nothing to irrigate their crops, and many have had no choice to abandon their land altogether. And then meanwhile, chemical leaks from lithium mines have posted, have um, been problems with had been dumping into rivers all over the globe, killing off whole freshwater ecosystems. He writes, "The lithium boom has barely started, and it's already a catastrophe." And you know, Sarah, what this reminds me of is uh, the the Mayan communities that we are uh, in solidarity with down in the Yucatan, where they're experiencing um, what I would call extractivist you know, industrial agriculture that uh, where the rice farming that is being done, unfortunately, by uh, some old colony Mennonites down there is leaching um, uh, pesticides and uh, it's drawing down their water table very quickly, but it's also leaching, as I understand it, pesticides into their water table.
1: Yeah, and and introducing GMO seed. That is overtaking, you know, um, native plants and um, disrupting or actually extinguishing um, the livelihood of those people um, that live there. That is to say the Mayan people who have been seeking a livelihood um, on the Yucatan Peninsula since time immemorial. And that livelihood is now being um, contaminated and removed.
0: Some people have referred to industrial agriculture as soil mining. Um, as just another form of mining in a way. Um, And I think that we see that. um, So when we're talking about extraction, I do think this kind of industrial agriculture is just another extractive industry um, that is impacting, in this case, one of uh, the partners that we're working with.
1: Right. And, you know, I I, one of the things I want to just touch on this is that, um, you know, I think there are people who be frustrated and say, well, I don't understand. Renewable energy is what I've been marching for. And this is what we need to do. We need to get off of oil. And if only we can stop, you know, carbon emissions, then everything's going to be okay." And I know there's this frustration. It's like now you're telling me that's not going to work. And, you know, I really hear that, but I think we have to be willing to shift our worldview to think about what is the, what is demonstrated by the spirit of life? You know, so Romans chapter one, verse 20, um, talks about, um, how, um, the, 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 the character of God and, uh, Um, the Creator's nature is expressed through creation. And what does that creation tell us about the nature of the Creator? Because that's really the spirit of life. And what are we doing to live in harmony with that? Are we choosing to live in harmony with that? And I think this is going back to this understanding that we live in a closed system. We can't add more water. We can't add more soil. We can't add more air. And and we have to live in harmony with the systems that there are. And so, you know, instead of thinking about how we can use technology to sort of cheat <laughs> the, the system, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, we can, we can develop new technologies that are going to allow us to maintain the lifestyles that we live now and the power that we have now um, in spite of, um, you know, we can outsmart our closed system. In fact, we can't. I mean, I think what you've just said, Sherry and shared demonstrates that we have to live within the balance of this closed system and we are mutually dependent. So the behavior that we exhibit here among ourselves in our homes directly has an impact on living creatures around the globe, not just here among ourselves and our families and friends, but it has an impact on the entire, um, on the entire world, living. Uh, system, um, that others are depending on as well. And so, um, you know, I think we have to start thinking about what it means to live in harmony and balance with these systems of life that we're dependent upon. And I think, um, I think the great, message of hope that indigenous peoples demonstrate for us is that it's possible to live in balance in that way and um, and have demonstrated that through the cosmology um, that indigenous peoples practice, which is an understanding and a reverence for creation as an expression of the nature of the creator. And so thinking about um, what it means to believe in your heart that what you have is enough you know that an economy based on enough (laughs) you know instead of growth um what would it be like to to have as our goal harmony and stasis not growth
0: Well I, that is why you know my my hope I mean cuz you're right I I think I I know that like sort of bursting the bubble of renewable energy and the green new deal might feel really hard for people. But I think what it does is it pushes us to this deeper level of really looking, as you said so well, Sarah, to really looking at our worldview. And I, the hope I have comes from the fact that there is this indigenous cosmology and this indig- indigenous way of living in harmony uh, within this closed system that that we can learn from
1: uh, that we can that we can look to as a source of hope, um, right? And I want to be really clear that I don't want to I don't want to over um, emphasize, you know, sort of exoticizing native people and worldview, and sort of saying, oh yeah, we have this magical solution over here. What it is is living within a balance, um, just like um, balancing um, one's finances understanding what, what you can, what is required in order to, to, to live within our means as a, as a ecosystem. And so, um, that requires a different understanding of reality. And I would say an understanding of reality because it feels like what we've been living in is a fantasy. Exactly. And I I appreciate what you said about the exotic, I can't say the word, the
0: exoticization, you you know the word I'm trying to say. Exoticism. Thank you. Because we all knew this at one time. We all, uh, when I say we, I mean, you know, someone like me, who is European, of European descent. I am from people who at one time, and maybe arguably even now, if you look at the Amish to some degree, knew how to live in balance with the environment. You know, this is the way all of us had to live. Um and really I think that it's the rise of the use of fossil fuels and of a certain kind of capitalism that arose that has gotten us living in more of this fantasy idea that we don't live within a closed system. And that somehow we can just keep consuming, consuming, growing, growing, growing and that you know, we'll never have to pay the piper
1: for that. Right. And I think, um, you know, one of the things you've talked about before, Sherry, is this fallacy of recycling, because I do, I know, I notice a lot of people and individuals who feel like, Hey, I'm contributing by recycling and somehow recycling is going to, to, um, to that's what living in balance is, is recycling. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, we do need to have a circular economy economy where we reuse
0: things, but most of the most of the stuff we use can't be recycled. 44 um, 4% of our material use as food and energy inputs which become irre- irreversibly degraded as we use them and then seven, 20 this is not my numbers by the way. This is also from Hickel. 20 per 7th is net addition to stocks of buildings and infrastructure. And another chunk of waste is from mining. So in the end, it's only a small fraction of the total material use that has this circular potential. And even if we somehow recycled all of it, which we can't, economic growth would keep driving the total resource use up. So that's part of the problem. Like even if we could magically have 100% renewable energy, which I don't believe we can, even if we could magically have 100% recycling, if we just keep growing economically, it's going to keep driving
1: a total resource use up. Um yeah, one of the things I want to point out here, Sherry, is that this is still a dependence on this individualist thinking. So, for example, um, th- thinking that, hey, if I recycle, then I'm doing my share. And what I can do in a per- I can only think about what I can do in a personal level. And that's not gonna work. We have to be ready to work together as collectives to um, to work for change and say this can't go on. We have to stop. We have to pro we have to resist. This um, this need uh, or this dependence on a constant growth model, an economic economic model of constant growth, and I think, um, you know, as I've traveled around the country and, and spoken, and even around the world and spoken with um, with Christians who are who are interested in this. One of the things I really see is a desire to, um, to take these solutions, like I'm going to put up solar panels or I'm going to recycle and, and thinking that that's going to do it. And that, that isn't going to do it. It's not going to do it. We need a paradigm shift. And I really feel like it's, it's in the, it is in the wheelhouse of the church to call for that paradigm shift. Um, and once again, this is not just about vulnerable peoples. We have to do this. This is for everyone. It happens to be that Indigenous people are on the front lines of agitating for um, uh, for considering our environment first above economic growth. Right, but when we're talking about
0: overstepping safe planetary boundaries, that is. That's obviously everybody's um, concern. So I agree with you. I, I think that, you know, I there's this woman who calls herself a paradigm activist. And I liked that phrase because her name is Helena Norberg Hodge. And she, um, I think the church needs to be a paradigm activist. We need to be these people with a worldview that is bigger and sees, sees the truth, and the truth will set us free. And I do agree with you that this can be something the church could, um, could really make a difference on.
1: Mm-hmm. And must. And must. <laughs> must. Yeah, I must. Mean, it has to be core to our identity, or what are we doing? Are we really bought into systems of death where we're saying, yeah, we're okay. You know, we're going to go along. We're just going to go along with all of this. I mean, this is, this is crazy. It is counter to, um, the logic of life. And if from my point of view, it is, it is satanic, you know, I mean, all of this is just absolutely bent and counter to the logic of life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I agree. And
0: I, I think that part of the way that, uh you know, part of what makes this satanic or demonic is that so many people have been so misled, and that there's, there's a, a fantasy that has been spun, that we have all been conditioned to believe is reality. I think one of the things that I think is why I find indigenous people as a source of hope is because I think many indigenous people have not been conditioned like that. They have held on to what they know of rea- as reality. And so I think that is why I see and I think why so many people see indigenous cosmology as a source of hope.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the things I, w- I just want our listeners to consider is that that doesn't mean that every single indigenous person, you know, believes that, right? Because it's it's not a monolithic um, body of people. Of course, different indigenous peoples have different cultures. And within any given people, there are a variety of different opinions. So you can't say, look, this uh, this indigenous person has a mining job. So... You guys are full of it, you know? I mean, of course, there are different people who have different points of view, but the the worldview and the the traditions of many indigenous peoples are consistent with um, this understanding of reality that a mainstream capitalist system is not um, acknowledging. And, you know, this idea that renewable energy will save us is essentially spinning gold out of straw. I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, uh, Rumpelstiltskin. Um, do you remember that Rumpelstiltskin? Yeah, yeah of course, <laughs> of course. What is it? It's a kid's story that talks about how, um, you know, a person is being required to sit in a barn and, um, and weave gold out of or spin gold out of straw. And that's what we're doing when we say that renewable energy is going to save us. It isn't. Um, you cannot make gold from straw. Yeah. Well, I also just want to say Sarah that I
0: believe that within um what I would call non-imperial Christianity is, is a tradition and a, a worldview that is also counter um, this growth oriented, extractivist economic view that we have. So, and obviously um, many Christians or even people, you know, you can't look at Christians and say, oh, look, you, this must be a bunch of crap because look what you're doing. Um, it's, it, I liked what you said about how it's the, it's the indigenous traditions and worldview that, that have that hope. And I also think there's that hope in versions of Christianity also, also, or else I wouldn't be a Christian. Yeah. So thank you, Sarah. I appreciate having this conversation with you this morning.
1: Thank you, Sherry. I appreciate you sharing. I want to just once again talk about, um, the book, um, less is more how degrowth will save the world by Jason Hickel. I appreciate you bringing that forward and really breaking that, that down for us, because I think that's really important, um, as we're struggling together to try and imagine a world, um, of enough where we can, where we can live in harmony. This podcast is hosted by us. Co produced by the DD of D Coalition and Anabaptist World. The opinions
0: expressed here are ours, however, and do not reflect official positions of Anabaptist World. Our theme music is by Micah Peplo and Shannon Kaler. Thank you.
1: For more information go to anabaptistworld.org and dofdmenno.org